DJ Bruja, and we are in the studio, aka the building down in Washington. And uh, uh, we've got from Chains of Chains today, and we've got a really, uh, really, really serious episode. But I feel like there's going to be some laughter somehow involved, considering who I've got sitting around me. Uh, and so let's just, uh, we, you know, we're going to talk a, quite a bit about a, a new project that's come out about some of the, the work that formerly incarcerated people can be doing uh, to really cut down on the violence, to help people get an opportunity, and really around you know helping each other with an each one teach one kind of model. And, and we're gonna hear from some amazing people. So why don't we just kind of go around and then and let's uh, we can start with my man Chico, do a little round of introductions, kind of get you know who, who you are, yeah, where you're coming name, from. My name is Chico Yancey, coming from Baton Rouge. Some said Checo, Chico. I'm cool as long as you don't say 10648. That was my government name, so uh, I'm here today to see put some knowledge out there. All right, and how, how long ago did you get out of prison? Uh, I got out of prison, in fact, next month uh, I'll be out of prison 19 years. 7,309 days. So I spent in Angola. So, for all you that don't know, Chico will constantly tell you he just got out of prison. So well, I was about to say that, because I was at Angola Saturday, so I just got out of prison. <laughs> but I was able to drive right on out, you know. All so, right. Yeah. Fair enough. Charles? Hi, how y'all doing? I'm Charles Amos. I just, I, I was incarcerated 28 years. In two days, I'll be out four months. So you literally just got out of prison. Literally. So you can educate Chico about <laughs> what it means to just get out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. And what do you do now? Uh, I work here for Vote as a videographer. Okay. So uh, it is amazing because I was talking to Jimmy Robinson yesterday, and he was like, you work for the First 72? I said, no, I work for Vote. He said, well, what you doing over there? I said, I'm a videographer. He said, so you took that thing from prison? And brought it out there, I'm like, with whatever you do in prison, you can do out here. And if mm -hmm. you find what you was doing in prison to do out here, you're going to succeed all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so let's get bring the other guys in. We got another familiar face over here. Who we got over here? My name is Ronald Marshall. I was released last year, October 12, 2021. I served 25 years in prison. And I'm here to offer my perspective and also learn from the perspective of my fellow men. I'm a policy analyst at Vote. I work uh, with the with the policy with Chico and Bruce Riley, and I'm happy to be here today. All right, and you know, so you got actually an anniversary coming up. October. Yes, I do, man. You got I any do. special plan? Yes. Uh, so me and my fiance. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. Sorry about that. <laughs> already taken. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> we going to uh, first. We got uh, we got our. Our conference in Georgia, but soon we'll come back from the conference, it'll be the 12th. I'm going to take you some time off. We're going to Napa, California. Hey. Yeah, we're going to Napa, California. And uh, for my birthday, which is Monday. Uh, this or the Monday near there? Monday coming. Okay. August 29th, my birthday. I'm going to celebrate my birthday here at Vogue oh, with nice. my family. Yeah, get used to it. That's how we do. <laughs> All right. And then over here we've got uh, Anthony Hangel Jr. After serving 32 years incarcerated, I've been home now maybe 15, 16 months. Mm. I'm working over here at Boat as an office manager, pretty much trying to do a little bit of everything. I'm here today to speak a little bit about the visiting room project. Yeah, and you're, you're like me, like 15, 16 months. This, 
you know, Jib- Jib- Jibba, Jibbalot, and then Tico, and then they got it down to the second. You know, some of us are like, yeah, I've been out about, you know, X years or whatever. I don't know. And I, and I tried to do the hours, and it just got too too complicated. So I, I stuck with the days, 7,309 days. Then you exactly. can do like an app or something, so you can just yeah. check your Apple Watch and it tells you exact. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, Anthony, you, you brought it up. And um, so why don't you give us and the listeners kind of a sense of, you mentioned the Visiting Room Project. So, you know, what is the Visiting Room Project? And uh, just kind of kick us off. It's actually been in the making for maybe four or five years. The professor from Loyola, Dr. Marcus Concord, he was coming to Angola interviewing inmates that were serving life sentences. His, his and another fellow, Calvin Duncan, which Calvin was formerly a which was also a formerly incarcerated person who was wrongfully convicted. He's been home some years now. They working together with the project. And their thing was to highlight guys that are serving life sentences to show where they're not only in prison, just non-existence, they're actually doing some good things on seeking redemption and bettering themselves and from that project alone, I believe you may have had maybe 107 people that was interviewed. A, a great deal of them fellas had been came home through the Civil Rights Project, no, the Civil Rights Division. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're pretty much, um, they're success stories. They're out here doing the right thing, helping out however they can, um, uplifting their communities, being a plus to society, in other words. And that's what the project is about, is to highlight those life sentences, guys that can come home and be productive, as opposed to just being thrown away and being non-existent. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, so you had a life sentence. Yes. Ron, what was your sentence? I had a 50-year sentence. Did after that before my sentence was vacated under the bitch offender law without a legal sentence, and Jason Wilson recommended to Robin Pittman that she gave me credit for time served, and that's what she did. So I walked out of prison without any parole, no probation, free man, got my boarding rights back. So yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. Chico, license? Yeah, license, yeah. Charles, license? License. I had a, a, a measly, uh, not so much of a life sentence, but surrounded by people with life sentences is a normal thing for me. Charles, you know, what was it? So you were also featured in the Visiting Room Project, no? Yes, I was. Um, and the Visiting Room Project, it opened some doors for me. Mm. Of course, with the recommendation from the governor, because I got a recommendation. Before I went to court, the governor signed my commutation, which the, the, the um, pardon board recommended that I do 99 years and be eligible for parole after serving 30, well, when the governor signed well, it. Let's pause parole. for a second for our listeners' sake, right? So, and so people can understand the process of going from a life sentence with no parole eligibility mm-hmm. to then the pardon board, which can then which can then turn it into to numbers. Yes. And then when you got numbers, then you can then go to the parole board and maybe get parole. Yes, because the process. See, most people. I'm glad you said that because when when initially. I went before the pardon board and was recommended. Everybody was saying, even guys in prison didn't understand the process that 
just because the government, just because the board recommended it, doesn't mean that I'm about to go home. There, mm -hmm. are, there are more steps involved here. Mm -hmm. First, you get the recommendation, and then the governor has to sign it, and then you go back on the parole board, and they were like, mm -hmm. "What sense does that make?" Well, mm -hmm. this is the process, and so mm -hmm. the, when I went before the pardon board, they recommended my sentence to be 99 years with parole after 30, mm -hmm. and then I went. It goes before the governor. And the governor reviews it mm -hmm. and say, okay, you fit the criteria we're going to sign off on. Mm -hmm. Well, when the governor signed it, I no longer had a life sentence. Mm -hmm. I had 99 years with parole after 30. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are other laws that come into play, the Act 122. Mm -hmm. So this is, I was incarcerated 27 years at the time. So that means I had to do three more years before I become eligible for parole mm -hmm. under the commutation. Mm -hmm. But Act 122, which I was trying to tell the administration in Angola, wait, hold up. I understand that the governor signed my pardon and the recommendation mm -hmm. was 30 years, mm -hmm. but now Act 122, and at the time it was 790. Mm -hmm. Act 790, which is 2045, mm -hmm. it takes place, it takes precedence mm -hmm. over whatever the governor says or mm -hmm. any other law. No, mm -hmm. those laws, that 30-year parole time is, is mm -hmm. secondary now. This 20-year 45, mm -hmm. I'm, I, was, I was 47 at the time, mm -hmm. And I had been incarcerated 27 years, so I'm eligible for 2045. And mm -hmm. 122 was vote pushed and got passed. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. And so some friends of mine were saying, well, look, let's go present this to the DA because my victim dad was adamant about getting me out of prison. Mm -hmm. um, the visiting room project showed him the video of me. Mm -hmm. And he was like, listen, man, he needs to come home now. And he, this is what my victim dad said, Mr. Wilson. He said, I love my son, but I want Charles home. And I want to spend time with him before I die, because mm -hmm. he's a 75-year-old man. And so he's telling the DA, Jason Williams office, that say, I want to spend time with him mm -hmm. before I die. Which is pretty, uh, pretty powerful and amazing, right? I mean, we all have had a lot of different, you know, experiences, whether it be firsthand, secondhand, or thirdhand, around that dynamic between, you know, someone who, who committed harm and then those who suffered the harm. And here in your situation, you've got that that kind of like full circleness, right? Mm -hmm. And you're you're there, you know, talking with, listening to, um, you know, the, the the father of of the boy that, that you, yeah, you killed that, that you knew, you know, mm -hmm. coming up, mm -hmm. which is probably a lot more common than most people think, you know, that they, a lot of times you're from the same neighborhood, right? You, yes. you, maybe you were friends once upon a time. Now maybe you're in rival factions or something. Um, and you kind of got felt forced into something, but you know, everyone's got their unique circumstances. Um, and Anthony, I wanted to, to so you had a, a, I mean, the visiting room project kind of played into your own, sort of release in a way as well, did it not? Pretty much because I, I come home through the Civil Rights Division, through court, um, which I actually have been going back and forth to court for like the last two decades probably, since like 06, just back and forth almost every month. And it may look like something was gonna happen, but then it was placed on the back burner for a second, so time just dragged out and dragged out and once the civil, civil rights division came into play it was um, instrumental you know played a great mm -hmm. role in me um, being released 
And also um, coming through the coast, um, I also come home with no parole, no, you know, mm -hmm. no requirements. You know, just out to the, do the best I can to uplift my community mm -hmm. and help out wherever. You know. Well, that, that you're doing, and I feel like you, you know, all of us here were still, you know, we all just got home from prison, and we're all just kind of <laughs> scratching the surface. So you know, some a little more surface than others. But so Ronald, you know, you, you're, you know, you're, you're in this policy sphere now. You know, you got that that jailhouse lawyer background, like like, like the rest of us, and and um, you know, you saw the visiting room the other night, kind of like the, the the snippets of what we see about eight different stories, kind of clips, and um, yeah, which in, you know included uh, Anthony's story, and you know, when you think about the combination of the stories and what people are reflecting on. I mean, what do you think that the viewer, the average viewer, not necessarily someone who did time up in Angola or whatever, you know, what do you think they're going to come away with having listened to, you know, even just like five or six different stories? So one, my takeaway, and to answer your question, uh, Dr. Marcus made a, a valid point when he said these stories put human emotions behind the data. And when he said that, I mean, it, it demystifies the, the textbook data from the human emotions. Because when mm -hmm. you look at the, 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 the visiting room, you see suffering, you see pain, but you also see hope and determination. And like Quine just kept on saying, I'm gonna get out of here, I'm gonna get out of here. And that resonated throughout each video clip that we've seen. Although these men were in prison with a life sentence, there was also this hope that one day will be free again. And for the viewers watching their stories, it, 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 it gives them, it puts them in, in, in a mind frame to be empathetic to those who are incarcerated. Because without those stories, without the, the visual effects of human emotion, people cannot relate to the sufferings of men during life sentences. So the visiting room gives them that portal, that glimpse into human suffering to create that empathy for society to see that, man, these are humans just like us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't remember who was saying it, but, uh, and you guys may remember, but we're like really laying in, not even been you, laying in on like the impact, the pain that they cause so many people other than themselves and other than the person that they, I think, I mean, everybody seemed like they had killed somebody, right? But like how it impacted their family, the, you know, their mother, their father, the, you know, and the, and the other families, you know, the other guy's family and all that. and. Just, and just really understand the ripple impacts that you just don't get when you're 16, 19 years old. No, yeah. You know, say it like that. And um, it's, I made mention of that in the article with The Guardian, how I started writing letters to the people, mm -hmm. apologizing for them for not being what I was supposed to be in their lives. Mm -hmm. I could, I didn't see down the line that me not being there would, would, would have some type of effect on my nieces. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So because I didn't have any responsibilities as a kid, I couldn't see anything mm -hmm. pertaining to the future because I didn't have no future. Yeah. You know, everything was from day to day. And so that was one of the things I was trying to highlight in the visiting room. You know what's amazing about the visiting room project? I wasn't on the list to get interviewed. 
Someone, someone didn't show that date, and I went to Eric Matthews upstairs to, to get something from him, and he was like, "Man, I need you," and I'm like, "You need me? What?" <laughs> he said, "To do this interview, interview? Oh no, indeed! You know, in prison, you're not trying to do no interview, no interview, no indeed. You're like, bro, I need you, and because of Eric Matthews, uh -huh. I said, okay, bro, I'm gonna do this for you." Uh -huh. You know, not knowing that it was something bigger working for me that I couldn't see or understand. Yeah. You know, with the with the visiting room project. And you know, he makes a valid point because you know, being incarcerated for so long and having your voice suppressed, you forget that you still have that voice. Mm -hmm. And like an opportunity came for Amos to do an interview. Being incarcerated 28 years, Amos didn't want his voice to be heard. Mm. He didn't want his story to be heard. That's the conditioning of being incarcerated for so long. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, I look at it. I look at it completely different. Uh, and I guess I look at it that way of, of suppressing the voice is when we started the Civics Project. Nars, Biggie, uh, several other guys, myself. Amos was part of the Civics Project, and when we were, we were trying to get our voices heard, you know, we, we, we did not understand what policies was, what, what that was. We knew in prison what a policy was. Now that I understand that in prison now, it directs your life. It, it, it does things, policy changes things, so now I have a new respect for being a policy director, working with uh, Will and, and, and Bruce, you know, doing the policy work of what we did. But sitting here listening to Amos, uh, I called him and I said, Amos, tell me what you was thinking about. When I'm looking at his picture, tell me what you was thinking about with his arm stretched. And he gave me a description like, wow, okay, this is how you felt too. Because I can remember the day that I made parole and I was a trustee, so you could walk around the prison. So the warden was there, warden Kane, warden Smith, and everybody. I used to say, can I just walk outside? They built They said, what's wrong? I said, I just want to walk. And it just granted me. Mm -hmm. And I walked outside, and I just hollered. Because <laughs> if you can't holler in prison like that, if you holler in prison, then something, you know, hit the beep and all mm -hmm. that. And I was, I was laughing at Amos. I said, that's how I felt, too. You know, because when we're looking at this, as Ronald is saying, you know, voices are suppressed. Norris, Wilbur, myself, and a whole bunch of other guys, we were able to make our voices heard. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know how we were doing it, but we were just doing it. You know, Act 790, you know, at that time when, when the Civics Project was put together in 1987, uh, I almost fell out with Norris and, you know, falling out and hey, man, I, I don't agree with what y'all doing. Y'all talking about do 20 years. Man, I, I done did eight years. I don't want to do no damn 20 years. <laughs> Not understanding that 2045 was what we were fighting for from chains to change. Mm. And we started putting seminars together, and that's how Amos, I can remember when Dillard University came. In fact, hey man, but y'all ain't gonna believe this. We had Dillard University, we had Loyola University, we had Tulane University, we had Alcorn, we had Gramlin, we had Texas Southern. Texas students came on a bus all the way to Angola to do a symposium with incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. 
and I will always remember. For a few years. Huh? For a few years. Yeah, four years, you know, but I remember the first one we did, and Naomi Fogg, who actually did the bill for us, mm -hmm. you know, it became Act 790. You know, because we, we put a, you know, we were looking for somebody to put the bill, and she just happened to be in the audience when Norris was explaining that a life was meeting, and she said, I'll carry the bill for you. We was in the pressure. We didn't know. We thought we could write a piece of paper, turn it in. That's how a bill becomes, <laughs> becomes a, a law. And she took it, and she struggled, and she got Act 790 done. The key to all this is, when I'm listening to all of this, it took us years to explain to people what eligibility meant. Mm -hmm. It didn't mean that you were going home. That means you were eligible for parole. Yeah. And this, the lawmakers and everything, you see it in the newspaper all the time, they're opening the door for everybody to get out of prison. That's not true. You're opening, you're opening a way for eligibility. And there's a backdoor part of this mm -hmm. that has not been said lately. And all people got to do really is look at the, the stats where it's like, I mean, you got, what, about 26,000 people right now in DOC custody. How many people you got on parole right now? Oh, man, I, I, I'd be lying if I, I looked at it a couple, about, about a couple of months ago, but it's, it's thousands of people right, on right. parole. But, and the thing is, like, what a lot of folks don't understand about our parole is that most of the people getting parole are just getting that kind of like little little sliver off the end right. of your sentence. Yeah. Right? You're doing 10 years and you end up doing about another year at the end of it on the street and they mm -hmm. call that good time parole supervision. Mm -hmm. Now in terms of like what people think of as parole, like that big chunk where you're like on parole, whatever, there's only a couple thousand people that fit that department. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, and so so the idea that the parole board is this huge gateway currently is just not true. And so in the people that we're talking about is people like that are in those videos. And I kind of want to get back to the sense of like, you know, a lot of the things that we heard was about how people grow up in prison and kind of cross that little threshold, you know, at different times, different hours and, and, and then help each other. And, you know, and, and about the mentorship piece. And, you know, you guys are all, you know, younger guys at one point and then became vets at another point. You know, give me a sense a little about how like, people are helping each other to kind of, to come up and be better. So, you know, like I remember uh, testifying in, in, in uh, the committee that Bloom won the life is bill, and I, I kind of like wanted to shatter the myth about rehabilitation, because people in society who've never been incarcerated, they have this stereotype, I mean, not a stereotype, but this, this perception of correctional officers teaching men how to read and write. Yeah, they're correcting, right? Right, but they're not correcting. Okay. And that's, 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 a, that's a wrong way to look at it. When you go to Angola, any DOC facility, you have men who have this knowledge stand in these classrooms day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, teaching other men how to be better men. So it's those guys who are incarcerated, who've been incarcerated 20 years, have that, that secret knowledge to re rehabilitate what was perceived to be incorrigible behavior practices. Those guys are changing the behavior practices and guys are coming out of prison better than the day they enter. So for me, I was a facilitator. Chico was a facilitator. Uh, Amazon was, was a tutor. Uh, Anthony was a facilitator of different classes. So it was us teaching, and men like us teaching other men how to be better men. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you're teaching people and you have no way out, you know, you have to encourage people. And each one, each one of us were in a position to encourage somebody. Mm-hmm. And the key to all this is that, as Ronald said, we were teaching each other. We had, we had to teach people how to be a man. We had to teach people that, let me introduce you to this young brother over here, or this old man over here like Sammy Robinson. Mm-hmm. And when Sammy said, I've been in prison 40 years at that time, uh, 47 years, you know, a guy is coming into prison fresh. And we were trying to tell them, I heard Norris tell a guy one time, they will keep you that long. Mm-hmm. And so you either straighten up and try to understand to do this. But what people don't understand, as Ronald was saying, the public does not understand that having an opportunity, having some way out, you following what correction should be about, because their mission statement said to punish, correct, and rehabilitate. So if you're being punished, your punishment is your sentence in prison. DOC don't make no laws or do none of that. I think folks don't understand that. Mm-hmm. It's the legislature that make laws, but DOC is looking for people to, to, to control and have control over them. We learn that if we teach each other, we can not only take some of the violence out of the prison, mm-hmm. it gives hope. Because at one time in Angola, in the 90s, people were hanging themselves, people were cutting themselves because they had lost hope. Mm-hmm. And it was through the uh, Mike Fosse years, through the Jenner years, the Roma years, that nobody was going on. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when, you, when people give, give up and have no hope, mm-hmm then the prison become disruptive. Yeah. And that's what the public don't understand. These programs give men and women, the LCIW, the women, let's not leave out the women because uh, I got a couple of friends with Ivy and, and, and people that have gotten out of prison, uh, or Sway, Consuela, they, they, they make sure that we remember females are going through this too. Yeah. And they were teachers inside the prison. Mm-hmm. So what it did, it gave people hope. It gave people an idea that, you know what, maybe I can change. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can change. You know, I, I remember when they brought the college into prison, Norris and I went to college, got a BA degree, and then the next year they cut it because the public said, uh, give them something. Yeah, a, current, a current incarcerated person should not be getting an education. Well, if you're going to come in dumb and stupid, and one day you may have an opportunity to come out with you, what you want that person yeah. to be a better person? So that's what that was about. And my thing was, I used to tell them all the time, my, one of my statements was, when your child, I'm talking to a legislator and I was in prison, if your child does something wrong, you put him in timeout, and they say, yeah, I say, you put him in the room, right? No, no, no supper tonight, right? Yeah. I said, do you leave him in there forever? He said, no. I said, well, why would you leave people like us in prison forever? Mm-hmm. So those are the things you look at in 2045 and, you know, just doing this, it gave people an opportunity to do the right thing, that the prison could be not violent. Because when I got to Angola, and I think when Pencil got there, it was the bloodiest prison in America. I mean, when you walk down the walk, when you come out of ACR, you walk down the walk, you got to get your stuff together right then. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as we tell young guys, you might be a bad-ass dude out here. But see, when you get to Angola, 
you got 6,000 badass dudes. Mm -hmm. You don't have your boy, you don't have your gun, you don't have all that. You got to be a man there. But what, what I'm looking at and I'm seeing, man, it's progress. Mm -hmm. And it's progress because men and women are coming out of prison that we were able to shape their lives. Mm -hmm. And from 1987 to today, look what has happened. And when I saw the visiting room, I was like, it took me all the way back to prison. Mm -hmm. And when I said that, I'm just saying for me, it just took me all the way back because I'm looking at, at these brothers and seeing some of them that I saw after they gotten out and everything, Jimmy Robinson and all these guys, and I'm saying, wow, visual really gives a real picture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was telling Amos this morning, you know, I'm, I'm linked with a whole bunch of organizations across the country, and I got a text uh, email back that they had, they didn't send it across the world mm -hmm. because uh, Amos is free. And I just left it like that. Amos is free. And when his hands are stretched, I said, man, what was that picture taken? Yeah. He said, right back here behind uh, the office. And I'm saying, wow, what, what, what documentation is going to be here when I'm dead and gone? Mm -hmm. uh, what a former incarcerated person did, you know, and put people on the right path. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at that and you follow our playbook that we have now, man, we are actually on a trajectory to be, you know, go to the top. Because we understand one thing, prison is for real. Yeah, you know, I, one thing, I, I mean, I can definitely, you know, as someone who, who came into y'all's stream uh, 11 years ago and, and so many minutes and days, you know, whatever the heck, <laughs> uh, coming up, right? Uh, but, um, you know, coming down here and then having a different experience, where it was actually like the Life Without Parole guys, which was not that many where I was at, um, kind of taught me a little something about like, man, this guy ain't trying to impress nobody. He's just trying to improve his situation, his community for his day-to-day -day life. And like, you know, and he's not ending it. He's just trying to be a, a good member of his society and kind of get the respect he gives and all the other types of things, improve himself, learn things, not for any sake of getting out because we didn't have that sort of hope and belief that we were going to change the system, whatever. But I come down here, you know, and like basically everybody is those life without parole guys. And then to be able to see the energy shift, you know, in the, in the social justice sphere out here, in the political sphere, the member sphere, and, uh, and you know, the, the idea that I could be sitting in this room with, with four guys who were doing life, you know, several of whom got out behind the hand of votes political work is is pretty badass. And knowing, um, you know, so Anthony, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you're checking all them emails from the inside, right? The, what we call the, the Mission Possible. Pretty, all pretty those, much. All those JPEGs. Give us a sense of just kind of the energy with the people that are talking. What are the kinds of things that they're saying and, and how are they engaging with us? For, for the most part, a lot of them have uh it gives them a sense of belonging to a movement where it's actually geared towards helping not that person individually, but as in a whole. You know, we're not trying to just help a one person, uh, one category. You know, we're really out here trying to help as in a whole, you know, as a unit. Mm -hmm. um, but. It, it, it lives their spirits, you know, because when we communicate with them, we, we give them the information as to 
what we are doing and what's going on with the legislating, with the bills, with the laws. And they know when they get it from us, it's accurate information as mm -hmm. opposed to being passed down the grapevine where it may get twisted. Uh, what they would say, MA Twitter. Uh, you can say NBC right mm -hmm. here. By the time it went to three different people, it's, it then turned from ABC to one, two, three. Oh, yeah. You know? But when they get it from us, they know they're getting on accurate information. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they really want to be involved. You know, they really passionate about being involved with mm -hmm. us, passionate about helping as much as they can because they see we trying to help as much as we can. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, a lot of the, you know, as, as y'all were mentioning, the, you know, the, the rehabilitative program on the inside is, you know, run, kind of founded by, Indies. maintained and, and continued by, by the folks who are doing time mm -hmm. with each other. I always say like, the number one rehabilitation prison is the cat who's walking the yard next to you. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and that's kind of where, where, where it's going to kind of begin or end. Well, it also is at one point, uh, a few years back, when I first got out in 2003, at one point, we were not even allowed to associate with each other. Yeah, same. Yeah, and, uh, you know, because if, you, if your parole stipulated, you cannot be around another former incarcerated person. Well, heck, everybody you run across is a former incarcerated person, you know what I mean? Tell us how that's changing, though. Like, well, well, that changed, really, that uh, DOC, and we just pushed it, Norris, myself, several other people in several other organizations actually pushed uh, Secretary LeBlanc to understand that if we if we can't be together, what's gonna happen? So they lifted that rule, mm -hmm. uh, probation, because the probation would come in now uh, 10, 15, 18 years ago and see me talking to, to, to this brother and they find out, hey, give me your ID. Mm -hmm. And they find out he's been formerly incarcerated, I'm formerly incarcerated, guess what? Mm -hmm. That's a violation of my parole. I haven't done anything except been in contact. You know, you, that could, could be your brother, that could be your mom, that could be your sister, mm -hmm. your church member, all of those things. So when they changed that, we, we, we actually convinced uh, Red Covington at that time was a former probation officer. He was, he was really a hard nose. He laughed at me when I said it because he would come 5.30 in the morning, bam, 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 knocking on your door, neighbors, everything. But he said that was the best way to catch somebody if you're doing something wrong, you know, that early. But when we told them what we were trying to do, they actually changed the policy mm -hmm. that former incarcerated people could talk to others and then went a step further. Secretary LeBlanc and that little board, everybody understood these guys can help teach people. Mm -hmm. So when the reentry program came about, it was former incarcerated people like myself and others that were going back into the prison giving guys hope. Mm -hmm. People would never understand what it's like for NARS to go back to Angola and walk down the walk and holler at somebody. Because mm -hmm. everybody sees him, wow, if he can do it, I got a chance. Yeah. You know, and, and as the uh, brother was saying about, Anthony was saying about the, the, the prison Twitter, Angola Twitter. When we give somebody information, we're going to give them the real deal. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you what you think you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what the law is. I'm going to tell you what the policy is. And this is what we're doing. And guess what? You need to get your family involved in what we're doing because one of my things that I do is, wouldn't you rather hear this from your mother 
or your wife, as opposed to me, I can tell you anything. But if your family is involved with both, involved with what we're doing, and you're involved with the civics project on the inside, because that's still our connection. Because mm -hmm. we created the civics project and the ASCP in Angola in 1987. So guys are now that really hated Norris and myself. Mm -hmm. The political so guys. Yeah they, yeah, they call us political people, uh, rats, mm. uh, hoes, all of that in prison. <laughs> and, and, then, and then finally somebody said, in fact, some of the guys that we're going to talk about later would fox them. They would tell the guys, hold up. How would they know what y'all doing? And they're not even they, the they ain't down the walk. They are always in their office in the law library because I was there in May Council. That's how I met Norris. And he became the librarian because I wanted to go out and, and I loved his father's the suits. I loved the, the action and all the things. So I couldn't leave. Ms. Bradley wouldn't let me leave until I found somebody to be a librarian. So Norris, somebody introduced me to Norris. Come to find out, man, this brother here, he, he's all right. You know, because I didn't know Norris. And we became good friends. And then we, we worked on it. But then we tried to get, our goal was to get guys understanding we have to work hard, do what we're supposed to do, but most of all, we have to get our families and friends involved so they can become educated. And what is never, what no never, what's not mentioned sometimes, Bruja, is we had another another organization on the side, uh, the Correctional Reform, that Mr. Sandra was involved in because we got our families and friends to start another group on the outside sort of like vote, but not as powerful, mm -hmm. but to get families involved. That's what's up. Because if your family's involved, then you get, you can get, you can get something done. You know, Anthony calls me on that, uh, 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 JPEG thing all the time. Hey man, uh, this is his family said, this, can you do this and everything? So I'll tell them, hey, we can't do that, but this is the process because everybody wants an opportunity to be, how'd I get out of here? Yeah. Well, we're not that. We don't do personal uh, writs and stuff like that. We're trying to help people in global. Yeah. The credit that we're laying, we're looking for it to be laid so people can understand that hey, you can be you can be strong mm -hmm. because you got to give something yourself. So when Anthony is telling me or uh, Miss Alona called me and say, hey, this family call. Uh, What's happening here? I'm going to tell them the real truth. Mm -hmm. You know, because I read something with Marshall the other day about uh, how hot it is in a dormitory. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to put air conditioning. I have another personal opinion about that because we didn't want air conditioning. We want the hell out of Angola. I want to sleep under the bridge better than being in Ash 1, bed 5. You know, because we understood what that was. But, you know, uh, Amos, man, I was just looking at a text this morning. The guy said, uh, I sent it in Washington, D.C. He has sent that across the country, and now I would be surprised that Anthony, I mean uh, Amos, now Amos. people are going to be coming, Amos. and hey, they want to see who this is, because he's a part of something that that's that's new, is fresh, the visiting room, mm -hmm. and it's it's all formerly incarcerated people, yeah. and half of those guys they've got not some of them in a half. I'm about what about about. Six or seven, maybe? No. That yeah, night, no. Hey. Well, that night there, they had maybe six or seven of those in there that can't answer me. Yeah. The number is steady growing. Yeah. The number is steady growing. Because Frank about to come. Frank Green, the, the governor, signed his pardon, so there's another one that's about to 
come out here. And I want to say this because you say I've um, made mention of the women. Mm-hmm. The visiting room did women too. They went to LCIW. And yeah, did yeah. I, but I was just trying to give the people along. Ivy reminds me all the time. Make sure yeah. when we're talking, mm-hmm. although the visiting room have the females in yeah, it, they do. that wasn't what I was saying. What I was saying is sometimes, and I know I have, we wasn't thinking about females mm-hmm. no because way. we were dealing with the guys, and then when we got educated and people, females, we realized, hold up, when I was going back and do reentry, I go to LCIW. So I saw Sway when Sway was on the inside, yeah. and she said, "Hey, I'm doing this." People don't know that Sway is a legally bona fide welder, <laughs> and yet she ain't welded a single thing in my jeep. Right? <laughs> no, no, but I'm telling you, she is, you she is a certified welder, and when she got out, she was I remember seeing Sway went laugh at to see her and everything. And Sway made a difference on the inside. So when she got on the outside, a former warden, Captain Fontenot, hooked up with her, and she was doing stuff in the in the Lafayette jail. Mm. And it's just amazing when you get your mind right mm. and the work that we're doing, because these are old. You know, every time I'm thinking about this, man, I'm thinking about what I've seen mm. and what we've done, you know, I'll be 77 in a few months, you know, and uh, uh, Norris said we had to plant our flag, leave our legacy. So I'm hoping that each one of us, we're leaving our legacy for the next group of guys that come through to understand that, hey, you know what, we did it. We did how many years? 28. 25. 32. And I did 20. And how many you did? 12. 12. So if you put all that together, that's a lot of knowledge. No, no, a lot of knowledge of what we're trying to do to let the public know former incarcerated people can be successful. Well, Give us an opportunity. Yeah, so, you know, jumping on that, um, you know, also, I mean, I got 17 years, I think, of, of reentry. Uh, you know, you, how long have you been doing? Uh, uh, 19 years. 19 years. One on 20. Coming up on a couple months. Coming up, yeah. Got a year, coming, you know what I mean? So, like, yeah. It's also that reentry now, right? But like, let's so let's think about you know we got all these all these folks you know men and women coming home, some with children when they got locked up, um, Ivy included, as right. I mentioned, you know, and um, you know what do you think? What you know what's where's the limit of what we can do of the what's the what's the ceiling of the impact that we can have on our communities and things like everyone's worried about public safety, like. You know, who wants to share a little something about what you what made do? mention of it in the email mm-hmm. when you were saying about and you both the outcome Ronald and you Bruce about the juveniles. Mm-hmm. You know, you need formerly incarcerated people to be counselors inside of juvenile facilities mm-hmm. because who understand the process more? I was yeah. arrested as a juvenile. Mm-hmm. I, you know, people don't know this here, but at 16 years old, I was charged as an adult for sex. I mean, for for armed robbery. Mm-hmm. And I was in a juvenile facility for a moment until they sent me to the parish prison, and then I eventually went mm-hmm. to um to to um De Quincey to Phelps. It was De Quincey then, but but we understand the entire process more than anybody. Mm-hmm. We understand what juveniles are thinking with mm-hmm. because we did a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And so to have formerly incarcerated people 
in these positions like that because someone who's never walked these these streets or never done the things that 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 kids are doing now, they're not gonna understand what needs to be done. They're not gonna but when we share personal experiences of, hey man, look, I did this. Mm-hmm. Honest this is where you're gonna go. And, and that's what happens a lot of time when men um, come to Angola. We'll see them going in a certain direction, like say look brother, you look small, you got a good head on your shoulders, I can see it from here. See you going down that path is gonna lead to this. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that. You know why I know you don't want to do it because I did that. I tell a lot of guys I don't try to fight no more because my hand is broke. You know why my hand is broke? Because security broke my hand mm-hmm. doing a lot of stupid and crazy stuff. And so you don't want your hand broke. It hurts. Mm-hmm. You don't want it. And it's for real. It's still broke. Yeah. It's Calvin still broke. Son, I thought that was really powerful the other night uh, when we saw the screen and we hear. Talking about when he was a younger cat, you know, on the streets, everybody told him what he couldn't be. Everyone told him about the negative, mm-hmm. you know, outcomes of his life that were just guaranteed, you know, growing up in a certain neighborhood and having a certain kind of energy about him. But he got to prison and people started talking about what he could be in a positive light. You could be, a, you're a lawyer, right? And, uh, and, and so, and I, you know, for me personally, it wasn't until I got to prison where I kind of really felt my value in the community. I felt like a, a hindrance or a problem in the community. But then I get in prison and I realize that like my, my reading and writing skills are just like, you know, my wanting people to get along skills or whatever. And you, know, you get involved in the, whether it be the sports or the, even the gambling rings, you know, I created fantasy football in there because I just wanted something to do, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, like, you know, you guys sitting here, you know, I've been saying to, to professor types around the country for years now, it's like, look, what, what I've never seen for a study is like grabbing a, a cohort of people, right? And so I would use my own scenario as an example. And uh, side note, I was talking to my homie who's got 30 years in when I saw the article, the Guardian article about, about you, Amos, and, and I was like, yeah, there he is in the, vic- in the, in the freedom pose. And he knew exactly <laughs> what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Arms outstretched, yeah. the freedom yeah. pose, yeah. right? Yeah. And, but you know, so I was like, you know, where I was at, we got a, a group of a group of guys, um, and there was probably some 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 girls too that you know we weren't mm-hmm. familiar with, that you know during a certain little stretch of time, you know, 1989 to 1995 or whatever, like the super predator era, as they mm-hmm. say. Yeah. And we were all between about 15 and 23 years old, mm-hmm. right? And we got ranges of sentences for killing somebody between 10 years and life without parole. We were white, black, Asian, Latino, right? And some had families, some didn't, but we all went to the same joint, right? And then about half of us, you know, were kind of out after a certain period of time. And wouldn't it be interesting to study the similarities and the differences and then try to like figure out like, what is it that makes the difference between someone kind of going the right way or going the wrong way or someone getting a second chance or never getting a chance? or taking advantage of a chance. And, you know, like, to, to take a, a group, and, you know, here, you know, we got this, like, group of Angola guys, and we've got our LCIW women too, right? But there's, like, a, a generation that went from, you ain't never getting a chance again, mm-hmm. to some chances. And then, of course, there's some people that maybe didn't take advantage of that chance, right? But then, like, let's take a look at 100 people. You know, let's like really take a deep dive and try to figure something out. And then for us, you know, who are trying to help others, 
you know, where can we fit in? And I, you know, you, you're bringing up the us, you know, working with with the juvenile kids, or whatever. You brought that but, up, um, Ronald. Yeah, I mean, my, but you know, that, that's the thing. I'm always trying to come up with like something, but it's kind of like, like a, cra a crafting. Like we all get it, right? But then you're like, what's the what's the holdup? And so I would say even like, okay, let's say we do this proposal. There's gonna be someone there going like, so you want all these murderers and rapists and whatever? They're just gonna teach them to be better criminals. Mm -hmm. All right, Ronald, you're on the spot. What do you say to that? Re-entry. <laughs> this guy, he's gonna be uh, he's gonna be at the freaking desk when this comes up. <laughs> it's on you, go. So like with, if someone say like I'm the I'm the, the representative and I just literally told you you're gonna put all these thugs in charge of these little kids. Uh, Mr. Marshall. For me, how I how I answer that question representative, you know, when you think about former incarcerated men being in the position of education to younger guys, it's like having that that that, that, that cure-all effect. We were once that poison in the community, and we understand how we create that poison in the community. We also understand that these younger kids, if they don't have some curative intervention in their life, they're going to create poison in the community. So taking these older guys who were once part of the community, and they basically have become the cure. Because I'm a former incarcerated men are. We're the cure. And right now, to answer your initial question, what's the gas ceiling of success that we can achieve? When you think about former incarcerated men around this country, I just read an article, man, guy on a life sentence just ran for just one uh, office in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Look at Nara, look at Bruce, look at, look at Chico. When you think about us, there is not a space that we are not welcoming as former incarcerated people because everybody know we have these degrees now that former incarcerated people are the cure to our communities. We have that secret gift. We have that language. We have the relatable experiences. Mm -hmm. And like when I be on these Zoom calls with our allies, I hear doctors with PhDs, lawyers. I hear them say, listen, we cannot do this work without the perspective and education of formerly incarcerated men and women. So the roles have shifted now. Yeah. People who have went to college understand now that those of us who haven't went to college but went to the penitentiary are truly the experts in this movement now. What well, the dream is uh, you want to testify in this bill? Re-entry. Re-entry, if you're saying that, hey man, they're just going to teach me to be more, more criminals, mm -hmm. then why does the re-entry program exist? Mm -hmm. those, are, those are incarcerated people teaching a group of people that you're about to send into society because re-entry is a two-year program. Back it up for a sec for people that are listening. People get sentenced in court. They get sentenced in court and the court sends them to do two years in a vocational or in a program in Angola mm -hmm. where there are lifers, men who, who you're saying are the worst of the worst, mm -hmm. the unredeemable, that's teaching these guys who are going back into society to be productive individuals and they are nothing but success stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Mr. Hingle, did you want to share on, on, this, on this bill? Pretty much the same thing Angus was saying. Um, dealing with the re-entry program because they actually go to court and may be facing a 10-year or 15-year oh. flat sentence or more. Mm -hmm. They sign a contract with that judge to go down and go and maybe get their GED if they didn't have it and a trade 
which is some certifications on whether it be welding, welding, HVAC, horticulture, culinary, um, plumbing. Mm -hmm. You know, you name it. Just about they have it up there, and it's lifers. It's, mm -hmm. it's guys that serve in life sentences that's actually mentoring these guys and giving them these skills and certifications, as well as some life skill classes. They may take um, classes on finances, finances and parenting and um, early childhood, you know, things of that nature. But like Amos said, majority of these guys that go home within those two years, they out there home now living productive lives, mm -hmm. plus in these um, this, their own communities. See, that was a positive experience, those yeah. things go for a brief period. Yeah. Mr. Yancey, I mean, you, 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 know, you know how we operate. What, what is your take on it? Uh, uh, you know, why, should I, why should I vote for this bill over here? You know. Well, you should vote for this bill and look at the stats first of all. Most of the men and women that have gotten out of prison, uh, less than two percent have went back and committed another crime. Now there, have, there has been parole technicalities with your parole officer and stuff like that, but reentry should be taught by former incarcerated people because I understand the system. I understand when the guy says what he says and how he says it. When a regular person go in, they don't understand that because we've had regular people come back to us and say, well, how do you think I should do this? Mm. Well, why transfer that back to me when you can send me in from the beginning? <laughs> and I actually, you know, we, uh, before I came to vote, I actually worked for Capital, uh, the Capital Area Reentry Coalition. So our contract was with DOC, some of the sheriff's office. So I went back in Angola, went back in the DCI, went back in the LCIW, went back in the hunt to give the real story and let folks see what reentry can do for you. Mm -hmm. And when I mean, what I mean by that is, you most of the reentry guys you're talking to, they got a date to go home. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a date to go home. So we're actually there presenting them and saying, hey, look what you can do and where you can be if you follow the rules and everything. We understand what rule one is. We understand what rule 28 is. A lay person has no knowledge of that. Mm -hmm. So when I would go back in, our contract said we went in six months before that person got out of prison. And what we're doing, we're trying to give them life skills and everything. Norris was actually, as you said, the finance thing. Norris was the president of the JCs in prison. We all had leadership there, all kinds of clubs and stuff. But I actually taught financial planning in prison. <laughs> the guys uh, that was getting ready to go home, and I never will forget Bruce and guys, you know, we, I was teaching a class and I read in the, in, the, in the JC's book, teaching book, find out what a person is worth. So the, the key to that was in my class upstairs in the education building, your, your assignment for this week until you come back next Sunday evening is tell me what you think you're worth. I want you to inventory all your genes all the issues, all everything you got, <laughs> and you come back and tell me what it was, and you put the, put it together, how much it cost your family or you to hustle to get that. And we found out, and I would start, I found out I was worth $2.92. Damn, dude. And that's because I was making $0.04 cent an hour, and they take $0.02. Cent. 
my jeans or pair of jeans, if your if family buy them and you buy them and they are $35, once you take them out of the bag and rip the tag off and put it, there's depreciation. Nobody understood what de depreciation was. So they took all that and they realized, wow, that's all I'm worth. And then we also taught them how to speak, public speaking, all of that. So it was done by former incarcerated people. They were in the class. Uh, Pencil was teaching law classes. Vicky was starting a law class when we first, you know, and then they wouldn't give us a place in the uh, education building. So he taught it on the yard. Mm -hmm. And behind the building, away from security. See, people, people don't want to look at that part to see that the officers in Angola, they didn't understand what reentry was. Mm -hmm. And why should they, right? Well, well, they, they just knew, hey, you, you, you're trying to scheme to do something to upset mm -hmm. what we got going. Mm -hmm. And we, we were just trying to tell people you can make another way because that was a sign in Angola in the education building. Don't do time. Don't have to have it. Let the time serve you. Yeah. And there's a little cartoon, and I, I gave it to Norris. He wanted to put it up somewhere. Uh, it was the pelican swallowing the frog. I and, then the, and, and the frog would keep his hand around the pelican's neck I and say, I, I ain't letting go. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving up. Mm -hmm. So eventually, the pelican had to spit that frog out. But that was the motto, never give up. Mm -hmm. I got it. Yeah, yeah I, see, I, see, I see that one. Don't yeah, never give up. up. Yeah, this well, is you know, so I, you know, so the yeah. uh, org. Right? Visiting room project dot is the or but no, no there's no the. It's, it's just it visiting room. No, there's no the. It's visiting room project dot org. And you know, I think we've talked about some some really live stuff here. And of course we could go on for, for, for months yeah. and months and years, right? But it ain't the prison yard, we got other stuff going on as well. And um, but I want to give you guys a, a chance just to, to say like, you know, who just quickly, like who who would you like to watch? Visit, or go into visiting room project and look around and why it doesn't have to be a specific named person but maybe just even like the type of person um I like Red and Anthony in fact both times I watched it brought tears to my eyes actually I mean that's a great answer I was actually thinking of like who on the outside would you oh. like to watch the, or like oh. to see the stuff I don't, you know, I'm not trying to elevate got, got, uh, yeah, one amazing got, story yeah, over another. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> um, in all honesty, parents of of kids who they think are unreachable. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know that's that's a general thing, mm -hmm. but I recall my my girl, um, looking at my interview. And her, her child is unreachable, but she went the same Wait, hold up. There's some similarities here. Mm -hmm. And so she started being more attentive to her, to her grandkid. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's parents who feel like, I can't reach my child. Mm -hmm. They really do need to see it, to, to see that, hey, you can reach them if you do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so um, parents who feel like their child is unreachable mm -hmm. need to see it. I would say uh, the group of people who I would encourage to watch the visiting room is those young men and women who are currently incarcerated in our jails around the country. 
if you're an administrator and you have a problem within your jail, it's because those guys within the jail does not have an understanding of the landscape that gave rise to the criminal episode. Mm -hmm. That visiting room gives that landscape. It shows, I'm talking about, it paints a picture of the entry point prior to arrest and to the Department of Corrections and what's, what's, what's happening with this guy while he's incarcerated. If they see that, they're going to see themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it actually put that immediate fork in the road. Because when you watch the visiting room, it's real TV. I'm talking about it's real TV. And in that moment, you come to a decision-making point in your life if you watch that visiting room. Mm -hmm. You got to say, man, you know, I'm going to do it this way and go right to avoid going to and go to possibly being on the next episode of the visiting room. Mm -hmm. or make this decision and say, man, listen, I'm not going to go because mm -hmm. I don't want to be on the visiting yeah. room. And as we know, I mean, going going right is not necessarily just a, a, a button you push or a switch, mm -hmm. right? I mean, no. trying to get out of some of the circumstances that we personally have been mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the peer group, the neighborhood, the family, the pressures, the, the survivalism, you know, and, and, uh, and some of the, some of the, what seems to be a conscious choice and we're like really just working on animal reactions at times. Yeah. You know, but uh, Chico, Anthony? Uh, well, you know, uh, I look at it that I'm supposed to be, out of all the guys here, uh, what we didn't say, and I want to be honest and truthful, uh, you know, I am a registered, I have to register as a sex offender. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be the worst of the worst. So I like for people to understand that about me, first of all, and then even in my church or the groups that I'm associated with, when I got the guardian, when I got all of that, I immediately sent it to people that I know several legislators. Mm -hmm. I'm asking one legislator to share it with ACJ. Mm -hmm. And ACJ is the Administrative Criminal Justice mm -hmm. Committee mm -hmm. because we understand doing policy work, mm -hmm. we are never going to get right now the three votes out of that committee, okay? And that's Marcus Bryan, Marino, and Denise Marcel. Both of all the three of them are represented. We have a, they have a team that have formed a coup d'etat with Republicans that their stand is they're not going to do anything to help people that's incarcerated or people that's formerly incarcerated. So I'm asking this legislator, instead of coming from me and maybe get in trouble, because I know some of them, they would do that and try to get me violated. I, I'm asking a legislator to send that to ACJ on the House side and on the Senate side and just let them look at it. Mm -hmm. So we can see what's going on. I have to register, I mean, Coming down here to New Orleans today, I had to call my parole officer to get permission to come to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Even though she says, hey, you know, if you're going anywhere in the state, you don't have to call me. You're all right. I can't take that chance. Because hmm. if anything happened, she ain't going to say, I gave him permission, blanket. Mm -hmm. So I have to do that, and I'm, I want people to understand that, yes, I was accused of a very serious crime, it was an aggravated kidnapping, and I'm guilty of it. I have taken responsibility for my charge, and now with the stuff that we're doing in the Capitol, 
I see the sexual lady that runs the direct. She wants to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And because she said, I saw your thing and you really took responsibility. Now you're out here fighting mm -hmm. and, and helping people. And you know, those are the things that people need to see when people take responsibility. They did it. Uh, you know, and I know people in Angola that was totally innocent. Mm -hmm. Totally innocent. And it took years for them to fight to get their freedom, you know, under the uh, Innocent Project and what in our coalition buddies. But vote, vote is the spirit because the spirit came from the Angola Special Civics Project on the inside mm -hmm. of creating what we're doing now, 40, over 40 years ago. And we look at where we are now, <laughs> we sit down talking. We've, we, we, we pictured this years ago. Well, it would have been nice if you kind of had it in the microwave and hit that. <laughs> well, well, you know, and, and he had, I want something. He said, I want to make y'all laugh about something. And I, and I hope that the public can understand. Norris and I have been tight for years and doing what we've been doing. Norris and I, and Ash Warren, he slept right across from me. Norris and I have set up by the county. Y'all know where the county is right before you get the phone. And we have been the parole board and the pardon board. And we used to sit there with 60 guys. We said, how many of these guys in here, man, uh, you think you let out? <laughs> and y'all laughed. And we would say, maybe about 10 of them. And why? Because we're in there with these guys and, and they won't mm -hmm. take up. You know, we know each other. Mm -hmm. We know each other's weakness. Yeah. We know each other's strength. We know when I'm bull calling and whatnot. So we would sit there and we would say, okay, if this is part of the parole board, we're going to let 10 go. How many of them would you get a job and think it's going to really go to work every day and do what they're supposed to do? Eh, maybe about eight of them. And we said, well, okay, how many of them would you let come by your house and say, hey, no, I say, hey, man, hold up, we got to reduce this to my vote. <laughs> I'm serious. And then we would say, well, how many of them would you let stay overnight if they was out in the rain and got kicked out? And it was maybe one guy. Because what? We knew each other. Mm -hmm. So now here's former incarcerated people working in the office together. Nobody's stealing your stuff. Nobody's trying to beat you up. Nobody's trying to do anything. And it's former incarcerated. So when I, would talk to, when I talk to legislators and everything, I am telling them, look at what you see. Mm -hmm. And I've had legislators say about Ronald, Wow, he just got out of prison. Mm -hmm. And he's down here testifying. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't you rather for him to be here and instead of outside yeah. committing a crime? Yeah. And I mean, if I'm there I'm every day at the Capitol, you know, I, can, I can't commit a crime because everybody sees me. Yeah. It's funny, you know, the, the, the flip side of your, your parole board uh, thing is, I remember it was in the 1990s or maximum security. We only had 410 guys in our max. It was this old dungeon kind of space built in the 1800s. And I said to a friend of mine who was doing a life sentence, I was like, you know, we're out in the yard, hundreds of people out there. I was like, all right, you got a, you got a, uh, you got a gun, you got one bullet. Who are you taking out? Now, as we know, prison can be an aggravating place. There's noisy people and silly people and treacherous people, whatever. And he's looking around, he's looking at different dudes. I see him looking at this guy and that guy, the guy, and he goes, you know, <laughs> I just line them all up, and I fire that bullet, and then I take them all out, and I just be here by myself in my peace and quiet. 
<laughs> I just laughed so hard. I was like, well, I guess that's an answer. But uh, uh, you know, I want to read something right quick, man. Uh, on this, uh, this is a friend of mine that does news media and podcasts, and he he, he said I sent him, and uh, your title is I just sent Charles. Charles Amos is home. He doesn't know Charles Amos. He said, and I asked him make sure you read it. He said, I've not yet read anything about Mr. Amos, but I know just looking at Charles Amos is home as a heading is enough for me to get interested. I'm going to do something with the reality and I'll let you know. Cool. So that means that people on the outside, and I use the heading of Charles because I know Charles and I know everybody else in the video, but that the way he had his arms, mm -hmm. it told me that yes, yes, I'm free. And then when you look over with Charles, sitting there with the father mm -hmm. of the victim and you look at it, now that's redemption. Mm -hmm. That is redemption, taking responsibility, saying I'm sorry. And there are thousands of guys that do that and do it well if they had an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because the, the media, uh, I was thinking about last week with, with, the, with the hearing that went on in, in, in Baton Rouge just the day before yesterday. From Thursday to Sunday, they painted that former incarcerated person as the devil. They actually said that. Man, Dave. And then Dave on Monday said, I'm not a devil. Mm. I have done this with reentry. I've saved people's lives. I've done that. And I, I just want an opportunity to be free in my last few years of my life. And that's real. Mm -hmm. That's what's real about what we're doing and seeing the salvation and seeing people being re rehabilitated and doing the right thing. Because mm -hmm. we all run across our buddies, right? Mm -hmm. And we know buddies that, that's gotten out that ain't what? Doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And what do we tell them from a distance sometimes? Hey, man, straighten up, bro. You, know, you really don't want to go back there. Mm -hmm. It ain't what it was years ago. When I was in prison, it was 60 dudes in a dog. Now it's 83. 86. Mm -hmm. It's 86. Okay. So it's up by three yeah. every minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anthony, I, we didn't hear from you. Like, if there was a, a person or type of people to watch Vision Room Project, who would you who would you really kind of want to sit down in front of it? Well, my first thought would be um, some youth. Mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily just um, what they would say, the average youth, youth period, gen in, in general, youths. Because it it not only um it's 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 a mixture of things in the in the visiting room project is is offenders expressing remorse for what they've done is also offenders showing how they mature how they rehabilitated themselves how they determined to be compassionate in this and compassionate in that, um, searching for redemption, doing whatever they can, you know, to be that better person. And the thing is, most of them have been locked up decades, which is 20, 20 years at, at mm -hmm. least. So it's like they've been practicing and installing this into their soul. And it's, it's in them now to the point where if they was given that opportunity to come home, it's gonna still be in them when they come home. Mm -hmm. Like Amos said earlier, whatever you was doing in the penitentiary, 
if you come out here and you do the same thing, you're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. Like Ron, he was practicing law in the um, penitentiary. Now he's out here writing policies. He's, mm -hmm. he's successful. Mm -hmm. um, Charles, Charles was a, um, video, how you pronounce Videog it? Videographer. He's out just doing that. He's successful. Chico, Bruce, myself. Um, I was helping up there in different areas. You know, just being able to help. You know, having that desire to want to help as much as I can. I'm pretty much doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm titled as an office manager. I'm like four or five different jobs. Yeah. Just like that. We got four or five different jobs. That's how it is that vote. You know, not just that vote, but in the community as well. Mm -hmm. You know. So I think on um, the juveniles, for, for them to see it, the, the, the youth, they can see, well, when you say a life sentence, you have the different dimensions what a life sentence is. It's yeah. not for you to just come up there and just do some days, some weeks, or some months, or some years. No, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's up there for you to, Pretty much, uh, to be honest, it's up there for you to slave mm. until you can't slave no more. Mm. When yeah. you can't slave no more, now you're in a hospital bed wearing a diaper. You mm. know, until it's your time to pass by yourself. But you and know what I'm looking at with you right now, brother? I can remember you coming to the counter and Norris and I had a visit and shit. Man, explain this to my mom so my mom understands that. <laughs> and I'm seeing now you're older, but see, I remember when you first came to prison. Remember how you was? Yeah, I know you don't want to think back like that. Yeah. But, and we used to try to tell you, and when you got introduced to what was going on and seeing it, because most folks, when they go to Angola, first thing, you got to learn to protect yourself. Because it is a vicious place. But I can remember Anthony coming in the visiting shed because the, the, the warden had allowed the SCP to pass out information to families so we get families involved. And Anthony came over to the county and said, hey man, explain to my mom what this is so she can get involved. And I'm looking at you now. Now you're taking phone calls of other folks and you same thing that you were doing on the inside before you left, now you're doing this because Calvin Duncan really come up with that and told Norris now one day, you know, them dudes, man, the same thing they were doing in prison, that's the same thing they were doing when they come out. And now Calvin is in law school. Yeah. He was in the law library with us. So he, he wants to come back here at 4930 Washington, set an office up here, and be an attorney to help men and women that's in college. He better, and I don't want to see him down the street some other office. Yeah, he's, he's already <laughs> told me. He said, man, I, I already picked my office out. Norris going to take care of me. <laughs> but the thing about it is, Calvin and Norris, we hung together in prison. We would sit down at night trying to figure out a way to get out, how to do this and all that. And this brother helped with the United Missouri thing. Yeah. He actually worked with, with Topper and that put it together at Southern, you know, I mean, just think what we did when we changed the Unanimous Jury. Huh? He's on the steps of the U.S. Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, he's standing up there. I mean, what's going on? They, they took the picture together. Yeah. But we actually changed the Unanimous Jury. And because it started when Tarpon was a former district attorney. Mm -hmm. And he claimed he had an epiphany moment and, and, and told, hey, man, this is not right. We're only two states doing it. Mm -hmm. And we did that. And Calvin was a big part of that, mm -hmm. big part of that. So, so the, uh, I'll just wrap up with, uh, with who, who I would like to see it is I would love for it to be standard training material for prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see prosecutors get a sense 
of the other side, right? Because they're in a position where every single person they see every single day is in that little age range doing those things that they do. Now, if you're like the felony capital kind of case person, every single one is killed somebody or whatever, right? They're probably black and they're probably under 25. And that's the extent of your knowledge of these people, right? And so for them to then see what might be possible, maybe they're recommending different things. Now, of course, 99% of the cases that go through their hands are not murder cases. Mm -hmm. That's just the ones that are on the news all the time. You might think every other case is a murder case, mm -hmm. right? But like all those five years, all those 10 years, all those 20 years, all those three years, whatever, like having a sense of not only what is possible, who they might become, but then to be able to look and, and, and see something better in that person. And also maybe try to connect them with some resources, connect them, be like, you know what, you need to, we need to have a program with these cats mm -hmm. and we need to send you into that program. And maybe you ain't going to catch it the first time, just like quitting smoking or whatever the case may be. You might have to take a while to sink in. You might need a, a long-term mentor, not just some little one-off, you know, conversation. Um, but I do think that, that the judges and prosecutors, and we know most of the judges, they kind of come from the prosecutor mm -hmm. ranks. Mm -hmm. They don't see the other side. They just see that front end. And my pro my to this my prosecutor became a judge. I think he's around he's going around town if he's asked, and he thinks this is all a big act. Mm. That I'm just like this like worst of the worst. Mm. And who knows? Maybe he thinks I have this like this like nightlife where I'm like, <laughs> you know, the serial killer or something, and, and it's just like just waiting for the Netflix show, like as if <laughs> as if I have the level of dedication. And and, I, and I'll just kind of close with this. You know, you, uh, Anthony, you mentioned the the hospice program from for just briefly yeah. there. Someone had said like talking about taking care of another people's, uh, you know, yeah, business. OJ. OJ. Yeah, OJ. And, and, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and he's like, you think you're faking when you're wiping another man's butt <laughs> day after day and, you know, and all that kind of stuff? That ain't, you can't fake that. That is humanity. That is, that ain't a one-time washing someone else's feet type situation. And right? guess what? Nars and myself, we were part of putting this program in the hospital. Mm -hmm. We were responsible for putting the hospitals together. Because we used to see as inmate counselors, you had access to the hospital. Uh, the regular guys in prison, you had to have a pass to go to the hospital. So they actually used to put a guy that was transitioning, when we learned that word, you know, passing on. They put him in a cold room by himself mm. and leave him there. Till he die. Till he die. They let him die like that. And we, we had an opportunity to change that. And we did change that. I was the head of the burial committee. Because I, I I would hate to see what they was doing. They had one guy that was a white guy, and he was a good guy. He was the only one that allowed to go to the barrier. We changed that, mm -hmm. and we called a point lookout committee. That we made sure we had flowers there. We we used our money, club money, to take care of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the guy we saw one guy coming to be buried in the funeral home was bilking DOC. And DOC didn't understand. Yeah. So one night, one day we had a guy we were getting ready to put in the hole and he fell out. It was a cardboard box. And one came went crazy. Cardboard. Cardboard, just because it's because he, he I guess the funeral looked at it as nothing. Mm -hmm. So we changed that, that we put we we buried people with dignity. We sat with, with dying men. 
And as, as Bruce said, it's not a one-time white bass. Mm -hmm. You got to sit there sometime when somebody's dying and just hold their hand. And we've learned that I can't tell somebody I know how you feel. I can only say may God comfort you because he knows how you feel. So we learned that we had, we had it set up that, that family could come up and see that loved one before they pass, you know. And, 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 you know, when I think about that man, it's just, it's unbelievable the things that we did to get to where we are. And as, as, as Anthony said, and everybody else here, what you did on the inside, that's what you're going to do on the outside. I choose to be productive, and I'm looking around with my brothers here and my sisters is running around the office here. We choose to be productive citizens. Well, you know, I'm going to have to get Edgar Barron's on here, a filmmaker who did that. You may not, uh, some of you may not have even seen it, the documentary on the, the Angola hospice program. Yeah. It's got a young little Norris in there, which is kind of yeah. fun to watch. Yeah. But uh, he also yeah. then later did another documentary called Prison Terminal mm -hmm. about the Iowa DOC program. Yeah. And he actually got nominated for an Oscar with that piece. Uh, and I, I met him during a, a thing. So I'm, I'm going to get him on. We'll, we'll talk about hospice and all that. And um, But I'm really excited that we're able to talk about a really, a really you know, great project that got put together. And, and props to Professor Marcus Concard, all the hard work he's put in, all the work Calvin put in. Um, we're going to try to promote that, kind of get it shared. I know there's a, a showing coming. Uh, very soon on the 18th, on the 18th. Of August, uh, yeah, 18th first of August. Right. yeah first church. race church yeah. canal and and uh and um 3401 3401 canal and uh and so we're gonna have to get this live before then but uh yeah so yeah it's uh thank you thank but, you but fellas you know what else i'd like to recommend bruce to the audience <laughs> i'd like for you to see i know you're being like calvin the farm if, if you saw the farm and look later on with what you're seeing now, you'll see a difference. And I think it'll change the prosecutor's mind, and I think it'll change some victim's mind. Well, sounds like you made a suggestion for movie night as well. <laughs> All right, so uh, we, uh, we're going to have to be uh, just chill till the next episode. I am DJ Bruja, a.k.a. Bruce Riley. Thanks for my guest. Shout out to Mike, and we out. We need each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I was looking at him.